Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. We're coming to you today from Let's Be Sane, Maine, and we're back at it again with this emphasis on asking questions. In fact, the title of this podcast is The Unexamined Art of Asking Great Questions. We see the ability to ask effective questions as a key to effective conversation. In fact, if we would take a position, it would be that people really don't understand either the importance of good questions, nor do they demonstrate the skill to be able to ask good questions. But one of the issues in asking good questions is, how do I know? How do I know if a question is a good question, a bad question, a great question? How would I even understand that? So we wanted to address early on in this podcast, some of the outcome of good and great questions, which we are going to label effective questions. Good and great is not a evaluative term. It's a demonstration of how effective you are. And so we want to speak to the notion of what are some outcomes that can tell you clearly you're on the right track, you're asking great questions, good questions, and no, you probably need to think differently about the kinds of questions you're asking because these are some of the outcomes of bad questions. So Ray, why don't you kind of talk to us about some of your perspective on what would be um, outcomes or characteristics of good or great questions? Okay. Uh, Well, one of the outcomes certainly would be to sharpen conversational focus. When you are asking questions or others are asking questions, they need to be observing, is this getting people closer to the theme? Is, Is this prompting people to think in terms of solutions, think in terms of outcomes, think in terms of issues? Is it causing them to see the issue more clearly? And one of the things I'm hearing you say is it's in conversations, particularly group conversations, people can get off focus. They can begin to get lost in the conversation. And there are multiple ways of bringing people back. But one of the most effective ways of bringing people back to the conversation is to ask questions that get them refocused on what it is we're talking about. And we're going to demonstrate later that these don't have to be complicated questions or detailed questions. They can be very simple questions, but the design is to get them reoriented back to where we were. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Gotcha. Another one of the uh, outcomes you're looking for in the aftermath of asking a question is, does it increase or does it animate the conversation? Are the people energized by it? Do they come out of any kind of slump they might be in? Do they engage more actively? That's a sign that you've asked a very effective question. Another would be, does the question draw people out? Are people who've been quiet, are people who've been less contributing, do they become a little bit more active in that role? Do they begin to generate more conversation? Do they begin to be more alert in their contribution? It also frames most effective questions will put a border around the conversation, will keep people from wandering off into other elements. I think too often, particularly in group conversation, people tend to bring in extraneous issues. They tend to try to bring in their pet peeves or their pet issues. And often an effective question will sharpen, frame around the conversation so that people stay attached to what you're really trying to get done and stop getting involved in things that aren't going to be very helpful. You know, and as you're sharing this, I'm thinking lots of people want to do these very things. They want to animate the conversation. They want to get more people involved. They want to get them engaged. They want to get the conversation really focused, get it framed up right. And yet so often they'll do that by making statements. And then after the first statement they make doesn't do it, then they'll make another. And so then what they end up doing is numbing people 
by speaking rather than getting the people engaged. There's a phrase that I like to use when we talk about getting people to commit to something. You can't get buy-in unless you get weigh-in. And so people have to weigh in. And the only way they can weigh into a conversation is to get those who are involved in the conversation to draw them out, to ask a kind of question that gives them a chance to respond and get more engaged. Let me comment on, okay, what's the example of a bad question then? Or, and again, when we say bad, we're meaning effective, less effective. The kind of question creates something that we're saying is not completely desirable. And one of the ones that I see uh, examples of bad questions is when Questions take people away from the conversation at hand when they get distracted. It's a question of personal interest, or it's a question that ends up not being a part of the overall conversation, and so it serves as a distraction. Another one that I feel an awful lot is the kind of question that puts people on the defensive. And I think of those questions as coming in groups like evaluative, rhetorical. You're laughing right now, so I'm going to let you jump in. Well, I'm, I'm laughing because I've been in groups where people will say, so if I ask a question why in the world did you have done that? They think of that as a question. Well, I actually see that as a statement with a question mark on the end of it. Anytime you're challenging people in an evaluative negative light, just because you put a question mark on the end of it, it doesn't make it a question. And when we ask questions that get no response, I mean, those are, those are the fears that people have. Uh, well, I'm going to put out a question and no one's going to even respond to it. Well, that may be true of all of us on the first question, but if you keep asking questions where you get no engagement at all, you need to think, well, what kind of question am I asking? Sometimes I'm asking just yes or no questions. Sometimes I'm asking questions where people are not inclined to respond. You and I were talking earlier about the fact that we've heard so often, someone will say, well, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Well, obviously there is. There is. <laughs> we get dumb questions all the time. Great number of dumb questions. <laughs> But it's, it's not the point of we want to encourage questions. And again, when we talk about good and great questions, it's the kinds of questions that create the effects that we talked about earlier and don't create these effects, kind of promoting limited information, engagement, and bottom line shuts down the conversation. When you, we ask a question, and it's more like the one you said, why in the world would you think that? What in the world are you doing? You know, what's wrong with you? Those kinds of questions. How could you be so dumb? How could you be so dumb? Why are you such a thoughtless person? Actually, audience, Ray and I could go on like this forever. Now we're on a roll with really bad questions. But the point being, we want to see, we want to ask good questions, and we're encouraging you to ask good questions. And both of us were saying one of the really important outcomes of this particular episode is we want to get to the point where we keep a promise that we made you, which is to begin to identify, okay, if we're hammering so hard on being an effective listener and we're really pushing the envelope regarding asking questions, then we need to begin to help you think about, well, what are the kinds of questions we can ask? What are the kinds of things we should be exploring in this notion of uh, question asking? And so one of the things we thought about for this session was creating an inventory of starter questions that oftentimes what we're trying to do is ultimately get you as a listener to think in question, to begin to think, well, one of my first responses ought to be questions. And how do I go about doing that? And back to our earlier model about being uh, consciously incompetent, it becomes one of those where I have to be conscious of, of what I am doing, how I am acting, how I am asking certain questions, and then to begin to develop a conscious competence that says, I'm going to build a certain inventory or set of questions that I could ask in almost any setting. Thoughts on that? Or yeah, maybe well, it's a case. Oh, go ahead. Before we go to the inventory of questions, I guess I want to cement, drive as hard as I can 
on your comments related to thinking in question. We are, we grow up thinking in statements, thinking we have to give an answer to people, and it is not common, isn't familiar, as familiar to think in questions, which is why you have often said to me, and I often have said to others, not as a result of that, but as a result of my own training, is that you should never answer a question with a statement. You have to get into the habit of answering all questions with questions. I think that would probably help you understand, help you believe that you're in the process of becoming an individual who thinks in questions, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. rather than statements. And in fact, I'm going to rephrase that a little because I think people think it this way. You should never answer a question with an answer. And you made the comment statements because we always think questions deserve answers. We've been trained that. We've been trained to believe that as parents, as professionals, as supervisors, as leaders. We've often operated from a perspective that when someone asks a question, it deserves an answer. And we buy that. We agree that at some point, clearly, We ought to be willing to provide our perspective, provide what we would call an answer. But what we're promoting strongly is the notion that your first step, if you could, and this is one of the biggest challenges, I think, uh, this would be the best way to tackle this whole notion of how do I ask great questions, is to begin to think, how do I begin to respond when I get asked questions with questions, without feeling like I'm being evasive, without feeling like I'm begging the issue, that I'm not being responsive, et cetera, et cetera. That questions really serve as valuable tools for any number of reasons. Now, one of the comments I want to bring in here is our background in history. Our dad was an umpire and we were umpires. And one of the things we know about umpiring is there's such things as rules calls and judgment calls. And we're going to argue that the ability to ask questions and the questions you ask are not a rules call. There are not rules that determine what's the right question here, what's the wrong question here, but there are judgment calls. I always loved your statement about dad, uh, Ray, that uh, you said uh, umpiring was a perfect job for him. He got to make a decision every 10 seconds and he was always right. <laughs> I love that picture. But nonetheless, what we really want to say is this is a judgment call. The kinds of questions you ask are based on your judgment of the situation. And yet what we are saying is that you ought to try to get in the habit and develop a core habit of first responding to questions you get with questions. And that those questions don't have to be long. They don't have to be particularly over-the-top brilliant. They just have to be questions that focus on the issue. So let's give an example because we're going to run out of time and we did want to, oh, go ahead. You want to jump in. Well, before we go on, I mentioning Dan, I just feel like I need to pay him the right homage. And one of his tips about umpiring that has always stuck with me that is perfectly useless in the course of this conversation <laughs> is the umpiring behind the plate. You always want to make a mistake on the inside or outside the plate call rather than high and low call. Because from the benches, they can see high and low. They can't see inside or outside. So I've lived my life by that axiom. Make the mistake on the call that people can't see. The mistake on the call, that's, hey, that's they can wisdom. See high and low. If you, they can see high and low, don't make the mistake there. Be conservative. But you can miss on the area where they can't see. Well, we'll see what our uh, listeners think about that. <laughs> Just that um, wisdom. That that's wisdom. That's not like Okay. Going okay. forward. To the ex- we were you and I were both talking about the notion of trying to find an example or trying to find um, a model that people could begin to think about this notion of developing an inventory of questions. Now, what I want to suggest is that 
if you're new to this whole area and you're thinking, I want to get better at questions, one of the starting points is to actually write down some questions that are almost automatic. And we're going to give some examples of this in in this particular scenario. What I wanted to give as an example, Ray, is someone comes to you. Now, it could be you're a supervisor and a worker comes to you. One of your direct reports comes to you and says, I got this problem. What should I do about it? Now, that's not isolated to subordinates, uh, superior relationships. Parents deal with that. All of us deal with that. We have all kinds of people that come to us and say, I've got this issue. I've got this problem. What should I do about it? Talk me through how you would handle that from the notion of they formed the question, they posed it to us. What's our response? Well, most often my response would be something to the effect, well, what do you think would work? Or what have you tried? What are the options that might be available? Those are three questions right there that I might ask. Now, and this is an important understanding. The reason why I don't go into an answer that I I'm, I might have a good view. I mean, I, I might have a, a workable solution. I might have something that's been tried and true. I don't offer it then because there is a problem that occurs the moment I offer a solution. And that problem is I just owned it. I just took ownership of whatever issue they brought to my attention. Mm-hmm. And if they try what I say and it doesn't work, then I failed, not them. If they try what I say and it actually works, then I'm the hero, not them. And the goal in a working relationship, particularly in an employee manager role, is to help them be their own heroes, help them be successful as much as possible on their terms. As a parent, even if I have a young child that comes to me, a younger child that comes to me and asks me something that I know the answer to, I know what will work, I need to consider asking them, well, what do you you think? Mm Mm-hmm. What would you try? What would be your first inclination? Because then if it if they say something that I know will work, I can encourage them to do that and they become their own hero. And for me, the reason why, and you were saying it earlier, you answer a question with a question is to make sure the ownership stays in the right place. Great point. One of the things that we do unwittingly is we permit them to transfer ownership to us when they ask us a question and we provide an answer. Now, again, it's not that we're not going to provide advice, direction, care, concern, support, but what we want to do is be a bit more aware and conscious of the fact that there is an issue going on here of ownership and who owns this, whatever the question is about. Now, I'd like to go back and say you ran a couple questions there real quickly, but when we were putting this in the context of developing an inventory of questions that become almost automatic, Back to your earlier uh, comment about we need to begin to think in questions. There are questions that become automatic. And let's run through it. Let's play them back and forth in terms of some of the questions we could ask. So the very first one you said is, what do you think? That's always a great first question. When anybody asks us anything, we can say, well, what's your opinion? What do you think? Where are you on that? But then another one could be, what have we done before? If it's in a work setting, we often talk about the notion that this this has history to it. There's some background to this. What have you tried? What what have you talked to others about? One of the kinds of questions I like in work settings is, what would be the implications of that? And that and that's actually a follow up question. So the person says, what should we do? And I say, what do you think? And they give a they give a response. And I say, well, what are the implications of that? How would you even apply that? So there are all kinds of questions. Can you think of others that you would respond to this first notion of someone asking a question and saying, uh, I've got this issue. Uh, what should I do about it? Well, I don't know that I have specific questions. The goal is to just keep it with them. Mm-hmm. So whatever question you ask, 
you need to be sure that you've kept it with them and allowed them to come up with something. Now, if they really are stymied, if they really don't have a clue, then I might ask them, well, what do you think others have tried? Mm -hmm. What might be some alternatives? Have you looked into this? Have you done any reading on this? Have you asked your colleagues? Because, see, I'm still trying to keep it with them. I'm Mm -hmm. still trying to make sure they've done some work here before they come to me for easy solutions, before they want to turn it over too quickly. So the key to questions, and again, we're putting in this context of answering questions with questions, and clearly we're having fun with this. We use the term always do that. But the purpose is to get us as an audience and as people who are engaged in constant conversation and communication to be more effective. And our view is that our ability to be more effective is to be able to keep the conversation in flow and helping them to stay focused on the conversation and letting them be more engaged. My personal view is that the conversation, when it's more animated, when it's in flow, when it's focused, always produces the kinds of results we say, well, that was a good interaction. That was the kind of thing we were looking for, and that's what we got. So when we think about great questions again, we keep going back to it. We're looking at those outcomes and saying, these are the outcomes we want that we cited earlier. And there's several different situations we find ourselves in. Uh, One of the ones we talked about was even controversial or potential conflict situations. I know a a book I would recommend to any people who find themselves in situations like this is one uh, written by the fellow who was uh, the director of the FBI hostage negotiation program called uh, Never Split the Difference. And the amazing thing is he comes from a very serious, much more focused kind of approach. And yet he is absolutely involved in, you got to ask good questions. You've got to ask questions that help the other person stay engaged with you long enough to really understand what's going on. Did you want to jump in? I'm I'm No, no, I'm I'm thinking that uh, we had several situations that we thought questions could be Unique job interviews, casual conversation, uh, this work environment conversation, the potential conflict situations. And there are some questions like when you and I talked, I mentioned job interview. If I were the interviewer, one of the questions I would ask any potential new employee would be, give me some understanding of what's the biggest mistake you feel you've made in the course of your professional experience. Give me one or two of those that you think they were tough and there was a mistake made and I had to recover from it. That would be, to me, a very important question I I share with you that in the Disney uh, world, if you want to be a top flight executive, they will ask you, what mistake have you made that's cost at least $2 million? Because at certain levels in Disney, the mistakes you make are in the tens of millions of dollars, and they want you to be able to make those mistakes with decisiveness. They don't want you going into those situations and feeling you won't take the right risk. So there are specific questions you might ask in a job interview that would make a difference. So we might ask that question. So what mistake have you made that's cost you at least 10 bucks? 10 bucks. <laughs> comparison. 10 bucks. 10 bucks. Because it's it's kind of got to be a relative economic comparison. That's right. Listen, we are already, I can't believe it, but we are already at time. How would you summarize what we're trying to say to the audience in terms of where they go next regarding this business of asking questions, if they say, okay, I got it. I want to do a better job of it. What would I do next? I would ask myself in light of this conversation, do I think in questions? And when people come to me and ask me for a answer, a statement, an opinion, do I think to ask a question first? Not to put them off, not to delay them, but because that's my habit. That's my pattern. That's the way I function conversationally, because I know in the end that serves a very uh, important purpose in our relationship. 
So that's one of the things I would say out of my hearing you and our conversing about this is that I think people need to challenge themselves to ask the question, do I think in terms of questions? Mm-hmm. And then the questions don't have to be brilliant. They don't have to be complicated. They don't have to be sophisticated. They just have to do the kinds of things we've suggested. Focus, generate energy, keep people engaged. And I think I would add to that, if you're trying to look for a place to start, I would start by developing a set of two to three to five questions that are go-to questions. Just if I have to write them down, I'll write them down until they become automatic. But they're simple questions. As you said, they're not complicated, necessarily sophisticated. They're designed to get the conversation back to the other person and get that person thinking about responses to it. And so it really is a case of saying, okay, if I'm not good at this and I want to be better at asking questions, it's just a case of beginning to write a few down that get me going and start. And then I go from there. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or a situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast.